Welcome to the New Stories Podcast, Season 2. It is great to be here, and I am Dr. Rodney Glasgow, head of school at Sandy Spring Friends School, and I am excited to welcome our three guests to our podcast. We have Laverne, who is director of our Institutional Equity, Justice, and Belonging Initiatives, and Joanna and Jen, who run our Parent Diversity Initiatives. And we're getting together today to talk specifically about parents in the work. A new take, I want to say, on working parents. <laughs> and so thinking about it, such a timely topic. And before we jump in, I want to give them space to introduce themselves, tell us how long you've been in the community and anything else you want us to know about you as you jump into this conversation today. And we'll start with Laverne and then Joanna and Jen. Oh, great. Let me go first. Laverne Byrne, and I here at Sandy Spring Friends School, as Rodney shared, as the director of the Office of Institutional Equity, Justice, and Belonging. I've been doing this practitioner work for about 15 years directly and indirectly for 22 years of teaching. This is how I come in here to this space, and I've been here less than a year, and it's been welcoming, but I come into this conversation also as someone who has had a parent hat. I have two kids who have gone through the independent school experience. So that hat in lens and perspective is very much appreciated from my co-directors here in this work. So thank you. Hello, I'm Joanna Schaffner-Scott and I co-facilitate the Intersect Parents Group with Jen Ray. I have a fourth grader at Sandy Spring. So we've been at the school since pre-K, so pre-primary. In terms of my professional experience, which I think connects to the school experience, is I am a DEI practitioner myself and have been for more than a decade. And I think that matters in terms of the Intersect journey. So just wanna lift that up. I think that's important for our conversation. Hello, I'm Jen Ray. I am the other co-facilitator with Joanna of Intersect. I am a parent of two kids, Joshua in the ninth grade and Jayla in seventh grade. And we've been at Sandy Spring as a family for, oh, since Jayla was in the first grade. So I, in my professional background, worked for, I don't know, 25 years in the nonprofit arena, most of it in social justice advocacy organizing and management at the state and national levels. Awesome. Welcome. And let's hop in. I'm thinking about the big picture first before we zero in on the parent picture, Mm -hmm. which is, and you all are or have been independent school parents, diversity practitioners. When you think about what a school has to have for you to say this school is thriving in its work in equity, justice, inclusion, and belonging, What are some of those non-negotiables and why do you call those specific things out as here's why a school needs to have this? For me as a parent, I think one of the non-negotiables that attracted me to Sandy Spring was the culture there. It was welcoming. It was when I first started, when we first came there. And and that's hard to quantify because you either feel it or you don't. Mm -hmm. So it's very hard to sort of put a number to that. I think the other thing for me was that, you know, we are an an African-American family and my daughter wasn't the only African-American girl 
in the class. Like she wasn't the only. And so that was really important. And there was different kinds of diversity, which I appreciated a lot. I think that that's, that matters. I mean, I think other things that are equally as important, seeing yourself in the curriculum, having space to really ask hard questions and that not be a penalty. And I think being able to see yourself in different places, whether it's the library and curriculum and storytelling, all, like those kinds of things, that those to me are non-negotiables. Yeah. I could build upon uh, what Joanna said and just add a couple of things. I think what drew us to Sandy Spring was, in addition to what she just described, was the whole concept of seeing the light of God in each child is mm -hmm. really powerful from our faith tradition. And likewise, we're a, two white moms with two African-American kids. We're an adoptive family. So we wanted a place where our children also saw our family represented and part of the community. The last thing is Kai and I both wanted to find a place where our kids could feel different from what's outside in the rest of the world, where there is real hope for a place that if we could have them situated in a learning environment where people really are trying hard to be inclusive and have that commitment and you see it every day, is a is a really good grounding for going forward in the world. And I could add on from an institutional perspective and programmatically, what's non-negotiable is the buy-in of the whole community. Why are we all here? What is the ethos? Are we all aligning? And how do we hold that up into the light? You know, whether it's the Quaker value systems, but just the civility of just being a community and just giving everybody a space and a space to share their voice. And those things are non-negotiable for me, for the institutional perspective. And because people trust us, they trust us with their children. That is the most important thing that could happen in, in any family structure. It's one of those things where they said, I will bring you our child and our children, and you are going to take care of them and we trust you to do that. So in doing that, that means we have to see everybody and that's non-negotiable. We can't just see some and not all. And it's a big dance to see everybody and make sure you don't miss anything, but it's one worth having when somebody trusts you with their children. So it's non-negotiable for us. As I'm hearing y'all talk, I'm thinking about how it has shifted what parents shop for when they shop for schools and, and back in the day and certainly our parents, I think, shopped for a place with strong academics first. And it switched as we got more savvy as human beings about what were the underpinnings of strong academics, that you could have an academically rigorous program and send kids to all these, at those times, top-notch schools. And yet, what was the cost to their humanity, right? And to their character development if we didn't tend to those aspects. And so now it has switched where parents are shopping for culture first, knowing that in an inclusive and welcoming culture where kids feel like they belong, they will eat up those academics in a whole different way. I'm, I'm loving hearing folks articulate what we've learned through the connection between social emotional learning and the brain. Mm -hmm. Wondering though, that speaks to two different generations. The generation of parents who grew up learning and going to school under one kind of an idea and mentality, and then the kids they're raising for which the world and school is very, very different. 
and maybe y'all can speak some to how do you bridge that gap between parents' understandings and priorities and the world they grew up in versus their kids' understandings, priorities, and the world, not only the one they're growing up in, but the one we have no idea about yet, the one they will inherit. You know, it's so interesting. I feel like if we look with the new shift into culture first, I think that is language that's really speaking to, we see you, we see you all. And what people forget is culture is academic as well. And it does build this core knowledge that makes world travelers, makes people be adaptable in any scenario. And that is a skill set that's worth having in any world that you live in. And our students, this Gen Z and below, they have grown up with all of this language and they are driving it more than anything, more than the institution because they're flying. They're just more proximate to diversity. They're more proximate to different lifestyles and uh, whether it's by television, social media, and the, the pace to keep up, the pressure to keep up with all of that from the adult lens it requires a structure to keep up, uh, intentionality to keep up so that culture becomes academic. So that culture is not separate from the rigor of adding and subtracting. What we're talking about are human experiences and who has not learned from a human experience. Mm -hmm. And what's rich and chalked inside of human experiences is core knowledge you'll keep forever, especially when you have a a human connection to all of it. So the switch is important, but it's also unavoidable because kids are coming up with more knowledge than they had before. They're just not being spoon fed anymore. They're driving their own learning around this, especially the identity pieces. So we have to keep up. <laughs> we have to build it so that they can thrive in it. And listening to their learning is important. I would say that the world I grew up in, I'm Gen X, so that, that may say a lot about me. <laughs> uh, the world I grew up in was hard. So I am a Black woman. I'm from the South. I grew up in a very racialized culture and space. And things were hard. Like the world was hard. I mean, I'm from the generation that saw the Challenger rocket like explode in third grade on the big TV, on the big cart. I think what I want, what's important to me for my daughter is a softer place. Like the world doesn't have to be so hard when you turn five. Like we don't have to unpack every aspect of structural racism when you're three. Like we don't have to do that. So I think that's to me a bridge and I'm actually happy to be walking across that bridge. I like that. It's heartbreaking enough when we have to have those conversations but I appreciate not having to have them so soon. And I know this differs for parents. Everybody has those talks at different times. But the one point that I wanted to make about culture first in the context of academics first is for me, that in itself is a place of privilege mm -hmm. because like I can say, well, these other things matter so much, you know, culture and fit. And that is a place of privilege because 
many children don't have an option, right? And so that, so I'm always holding, that's another bridge between my world and, and my daughter's, my students' world in that I didn't grow up in a privileged place. So there was not, it was, had to be academics because you, that was your way out or that way, that was your way to get attention or that was your way, whatever it is. I feel like that's really important. And I think that's the, if we're thinking about bridges, it's also the bridge between what it's like at Sandy Spring and what it's like in the world. Because in mm-hmm. the world, if you're African-American, yeah, that's a very different experience. And academics matter. Degrees matter. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. So I just want to name that. Mm-hmm. I might be going off on a little bit of a tangent, which I'm known to do. But <laughs> 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 something always makes me think of something else. But mm-hmm. pondering as I'm listening, just the whole notion of culture and academics and the difference between my generation, which is even older, um, an old, slightly older parent, but also to say that just academics, focus on academics only did not also include culture. I have to say as a white woman from out West, by not talking about culture within academics, I received an indoctrination towards a certain kind of culture as what's an American, what's a patriot, who's truly American, who's important, who conquered what. I got a cultural upbringing through my academic education. It was built in. So I think it's important to point that out as well. I feel like at Sandy Spring, the focus to having a more rich and full and honest perspective on academics is not only more true, it's more inclusive, but it's also, it really does truly teach our children to be prepared for the world that they are in because they see it every day. They see it on their screens. They see it with each other. It's, It's way more present in various formats. I think this is a much more honest and real way. I'd leave it there, but I do think that There's a culture that's being taught in other places, even today, obviously, there's a lot of divisiveness in it through education across the country. The culture war has just been (laughs) presented. It's just happening in our kids' arenas. So true. And Jen and Joanna, I love y'all's partnership because y'all always speak to the same coin, but different sides of it. And, And I heard it in this, which is Joanna's pointing out, I want my kid to have the luxury I didn't have. We don't have to deal with racism today. We don't have to unpack this at an early age. And Jen, you're saying, and I want to make sure kids that could avoid it at all costs at any time get exposure to it because there is a privilege in that. And so how do we help parents to navigate this world and those two different ideas that for some of our kids, it's about finally having the space to breathe and just be a kid. And for other of our kids, it's about Here's a piece that you may not necessarily learn in the classroom, but you need for life as a kid who may never understand this experience, but need to as a human being. And as we are watching the culture wars, as Jen described them, right, that I feel like is the central tension that parents are dealing with. Who and how much do we expose our kids to and at what ages? What do they need to know as they grow up and and what can they wait to discover on their own? How are y'all helping parents to navigate that? Wow. (laughs) you know when we when they entrust us with their children and they come here 
we try to make sure, of course, there's these three educational equities. The one where the kids, where your children see themselves. And we love that. That's multicultural education. Then there's social justice or anti-bias education. And we say things like, how do we make sure you think about how do you show up and everybody around you shows up? It's a critical thinking framework. It makes you think, oh, I, I recognize who I am, but I also see that there are different people beside me. And I also recognize on a much more thinking level that they're not having the same experience as I am. And what do I do about it? So this is when you academically insert this sense of fair, unfair, even a three-year-old knows what's fair, a five-year-old knows what's fair and unfair. And so as you get up in ages, it's more and more clear, but the actionable stage of it is what the institution can teach. You see something, do something. What are some great thoughts? Who's your thought partners? Who's at the table? All of that. And it gives this automaticity to critical thinking, which is really valuable to any academic setting. And then the third kind of educational equity is called cultural learning in the brain. No matter how much I feel that you're welcomed in multicultural education or how much I teach you to think, you're still, the child's still going to be a C student. That's the sweet spot of this work. That's the sweet spot, and that's Zaretta Hammond. That's the sweet spot that says, we care how everybody's learning and what their bandwidth to learn is. And that's the new conversation coming up as children are experiencing education. How do we move, no matter how happy they are in an environment, no matter how many critical thinking frameworks we give, how do we move that student that still is, is a C because they're just, their bandwidth for receiving new knowledge or retaining it is harder. That is a whole new shift in focus since we're doing really well at the multicultural equity, the critical thinking equity, and then we're talking equity education on expanding learning capacities. That is a huge lift because nobody's been doing it. Everybody's been just worried about putting up the pictures and celebrating and all of that, but we're not really digging deeply into what changes Laverne's ability to learn. And mm -hmm. that's where we go to the next level. So is it overnight? No, but we have good students to work with. This new generation is amazing. We don't have to explain as much as we had to explain in my generation, which is totally early boomer, but also I'm a Bostonian and I've been through all of the educational formulas that they've adopted and I'm still learning. And I will always be able to say, I'm still learning. Ongoing, no perfect answer from an institutional mm. side of view. Thank you. Mm. I think when we first started talking about what is now Intersect, it was really a way to create space for parents to connect and to give them a space to talk about issues that are connected to, di to diversity, equity, and inclusion, because that didn't exist before. And that was in service to creating more inclusive classrooms. Because if we felt like if we could make the space for parents 
by affinity group that would give them a little practice so that when the hard questions come home and they do right that there's already been a conversation or maybe you've already been a part of a group that's read a book or maybe you've already had a conversation about hair and you know how to talk you know how to handle it so that's what we were really trying to do because it was students who look like me who were receiving the brunt of microaggressions. I'm just going to kind of name that. We thought if we could make a space for parents to unpack some of their own stuff, right, appropriately, then that was in service to supporting students across difference. That was really our thinking around it. Yeah. Mm. And space mm. is important. And it, and it really came forward through parents too. I think that's this was before you were on board, Rodney, and right. obviously Laverne too. It really did come up from the parents, and we had a community forum that was supported by a couple folks within the administration. And I don't know, Joanna, we had like a hundred people come. Yeah. Um, and we had a first one, and then I think around that time the diversity audit started, and that lifted up the specific and clear, not only the need but the value of providing affinity spaces for parents to examine these conversations and topics and to really start thinking of the parent space as an important part of DEI work. Mm. I remember that event because, well, the second event that you mentioned where we had people break out into affinity space in person, we were in Mm -hmm. person at that time in real time. And so it was this, that's never, that hadn't happened. I don't say never, but it hadn't happened in a very long time on campus. So it was, people were like, what do we do? Like, is that okay? Do you know what I mean? So we had to kind of get people used to the idea that it's okay to connect by these different ways, these different identities. So that was okay. Yeah, and and even, even white people can get together in a positive way. That's right. <laughs> that's right. There's an important role for all parents and guardians to be in the conversation. And a lot of what Intersect is about is just that practice, getting used to having conversations like we're having. But within our identity groups where it feels comfortable and safe, but you can also kind of push each other a little bit too. Yeah. And I just want to underscore that point that it was in service to students. It was, it's Mm. all in service to students. And we align our groups to the groups that existed at that time, the Mm -hmm. student affinity groups. So we wanted to be sure, make sure that we were aligned there as well when we first got started. Yeah. I just wanted to say that in the practitioner world, the best thing you can do is make sure you have intentional spaces if you're gonna grow a program or grow cultural competency. And that's what Intersect did. You created those spaces. And when those spaces occur, that backwards planning of what's important flushes up to the surface. And then the institution can um, do a very strategic addressing of all the topics that flush out. So spot on for creating those spaces and getting all that information, all those, you know, really rich conversations that actually build the program needs that you will have that can be customized. We're at a a huge advantage that you started these conversations. So thank you. Well, I want to add, it was not Joanna and me. We had an incredible group of parents who it was not even a heavy lift at all. The parents just came and said, 
how can I help lead this with mm-hmm. as a group? We pulled it together as a group. And it's been amazing. Just the experience of pursuing this over the last couple of years. A lot of credit to all the folks that the parents that have been involved in the leadership group. Yeah. And I think it's important to note that there are a number of parents who lead those groups who have DEI experience as well. So mm-hmm. we came together in a moment where we knew what we were doing in a sense. Like we didn't know how it was going to turn out, but we we mm-hmm. knew enough to not cause harm. Do you know what I mean? Like we knew mm-hmm. how to structure things. We knew like those kinds of things, community agreements, those kinds of things to build trust. So because a number of us had that experience, we were able to bring it into this space. I think in that way, it was a unique moment where mm-hmm. you had this group of people who not only had that experience, but was willing to share and give quite freely. No, I appreciate that. And maybe take a a giant step back so that folks who are listening who don't know what Intersect is, they're thinking, this sounds awesome. What is it? (laughs) We can define Intersect for them and and y'all can tell us what encompasses Intersect and what's been some of the joys and challenges as you all really envisioned and built this Intersect parent program. So Intersect is a parent-led group. We work, we break out by affinity groups. So we have some affinity groups that are racially based. We have some that are family structure based. We have some that are other dimensions of identity and we meet in those spaces. Each group has two to three co-facilitators. And in normal times, we would meet, quasi normal times, we would, we also meet as a group once a month to share learning. It's a parent affinity group space that, as I said, works in service to students and supporting identity-based differences. And in thinking about getting to that point that Jen made around how some folks understand affinity groups and some folks have never experienced them, and it's very different from what one would imagine would be the end goal, which is always sort of integration and a full community building. What do y'all see as the role of affinity groups, which for some, some people will say, well, this feels like segregation. This feels like moving backwards. This feels like we're not coming together, but we're breaking apart. What's the role of affinity groups and student affinity groups and parent affinity groups in holding a community together, even as they separate into their sort of like-kind groups? Yeah, I mean, that was a heavy lift at the beginning because that's kind of cuts across some of Quaker culture. So that was a heavy lift at first to convince people that this is, we aren't segregating, but that the groups actually gave people important spaces to share in ways that were intra-group appropriate. We did a lot of work to around that. And when that was one of our first events was unpacking what that means. And piece that I think is important is that in those back when we were first getting started, that this is where trust became really important because Jen and I had both been in the community for a, a while and done projects and things. So people knew us in a number of the affinity group leads the same. So there was also this element of, okay, I'm not exactly sure about this, but I know them and I think this might be okay, but I'm not sure. (laughs) But it's important. And I think helping people see that there are some conversations that really are intra-racial or intra-group and that when we can have those spaces, that does strengthen the whole. 
because everything's not for everybody. And that's tough when the world kind of revolves around you. Right. And there is something <laughs> about, I'm thinking about doing the audit right before I was head of school, I did the school's diversity audit mm-hmm. and sitting with a focus group of LGBTQ parents mm-hmm. and people coming out to say, I just came out to see who else was here. <laughs> because we don't know, we, you, we think we know, but we don't know who's all in the community and we don't get together. And that was the beginnings of the recommendation that we have an LGBTQ parents group and that the school calls them together because they just want to know who else is in their community, who they can start in the middle with, with their story. And mm-hmm. I thought that was a powerful reflection on everybody spoke to, I feel comfortable here. My kids love it here. I love it here. And I still want to know who in this community shares my particular experience. Mm-hmm. And, and you can't underestimate the power of that. That's a really great point. It's so I human should... to see community, isn't it? I, I mean, I feel like it's not exceptionalism. It's normal. It's natural. We all want to know where our communities are and to have a whole community come together like this and be accessible for various reasons because of your affinity spaces. That's a beautiful thing. That diversity report was so critical to helping us move the work forward because it Mm. gave us an anchor upon Mm. which to set situate what we were doing that it was like, well, it's in the diversity audit. Like we, like this is, you know what I mean? So when right. people are like, uh, not sure, that gave us an opening. Yeah, it kind of contextualized it, you know? So right. it wasn't just like, oh, we're doing affinity groups. We're going off on doing it separate. It put it right smack in within the context of a range of strategies and, and needs to actually fulfill this I- idea of, equity and belonging. I wanted to, if I could just add one more piece of this. I think we, as the Sandy Spring Friends community, we feel the love and togetherness, which is awesome. But even if everything were awesome and equitable and we could achieve this fully on the campus, we we still go home. We still, our kids come home. We're still Mm -hmm. living in the world. And we I would actually say that we probably will always need constant attention until the world is perfect. Mm. We're going to be bringing it with us wherever we go. So our different experiences, what based on our identities of experiencing inequity or racism or homophobia, sexism, as well as the ways that we figured out how to triumph over it in those places. You know, I want to talk about that. And mm. I think the more that we do talk about that, the more that we figure out together how to manage and help our kids to live within this. It's so and important. Can I just add one, one point? This is how we ping pong off each other. Another piece that I think is really important that I want to underscore that Jen said is one of the reasons that we felt this was so important, the group, was that our kids were having different experiences mm. and like at school. And that's hard. If your kid's not having that particular experience, it's hard for you to connect to it. So there were a lot of the early work was, that's where we're another where place where the diversity audit was so helpful, was having that conversation that, hey, like we're in the same space, but we are not here the same way. And our kids are having different experiences here. Yes, there's love and there's belonging, but that lands differently. Everybody's not always feeling that at the same time. And I think that was really important. And one of the things that really strengthens this work is if I tell you my experience, you begin to care about me. 
So right. those affinity spaces that you keep establishing and all these stories that keep fleshing up make us care. If we don't hear these experiences, how do you extend health care that's needed for change? Those intentional spaces, those intentional sharings of experiences with different experiences within the community, they help a, a, the larger community grow because we're all growing in care, we're all growing in understanding, we're all growing in information about the way these systems that we navigate in a day affect us all individually, in mm -hmm. each one of us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that another aspect of why affinities and alliance spaces for parents is important and guardians is that our kids look to us too. Mm -hmm. we, can, we can bring our kids, mm -hmm. we can come in and say, oh, I love Sandy Spring Friends School. It's so diverse with lots of difference and it's multicultural. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna go now, you know? And it's like, you can't just drop your kid off and expect this just doesn't come organically because the organic way is what's been going on in this country for a lot of years. So that's just going to keep going unless we step in and show our children you know what the friendships you're building at school i'm building them outside of school as well our family has i'm modeling this for you as well so you can see me also living through my values and another aspect of these affinity spaces and alliance groups is how, how parents can build our relationships together across race across gender across gender identity the more that we as the adults around our students do this the stronger they will be in their confidence and how they pursue the world as well absolutely and we can't have this conversation and not acknowledge the parent world right now and especially as regards our independent schools and our public schools we're seeing a lot of news around parents pushing back against this work and challenging this work and wondering are schools the right place to do this work or is this our family's work to transmit family's values? And, and I wonder as you all do this parent work and, and we are privileged and intentional here in that when you come to this community, you know this is the work that we do. We were founded on the principles of this work. And so there's no one who was under any premise that we would do otherwise. And yet there are still people who struggle with it. And as we're seeing in some independent schools, people who are writing to the board about it and picketing outside the school about it and challenging the teachers about it and going to legislation about it. We're seeing states legislate against the work in schools. What do you all do with that to keep our school's culture moving forward as some aspects of our nation on this really move backwards, frankly? Wow. <laughs> um, you know, I can, I can share some of my thoughts. I mean, I, Fundamentally, I think that there is no such thing as a race neutral space. There's no such thing as a race neutral curriculum at all. There's no, there's no such thing um, because we live in this racialized context. So of course that is going to influence every nook and cranny of every institution that we engage in or participate in, touched by. I think that what's missing from that conversation is omissions are policy too. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, so when we don't include indigenous people history, when we don't talk about the land we're sitting on, not talking about it is also a policy choice and it's not a neutral one either. So I think that that's my sort of theoretical thought on that. I mean, I think 
in those situations, I'm probably a, a parent that's pushing on the other side, like calling the question when things are missing too, because I feel like my student has every right to see themselves and not always in what I call the three F's food, fun, and festivals, but in a meaningful way and with stories that are reflective of what is true. So I think Mm. spices are helpful too. So our values or quicker values, I think matter too, but those are my thoughts. Like, so when I hear that, I'm like, "Mm," not including it is policy too. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, as we wrap up this conversation, I'd I'd love to hear y'all's thoughts, especially as you sunset your leadership of Intersect. You got it started. You got it off and running. It is very successful. I've visited with a few of the affinity groups that we have. And also parents now know that they can call together a group of parents that match their story and create an affinity group, the empowerment that it's given to this community to say, hey, we're a group too, and we want to meet and know each other and educate the community about our stories and our children's stories. Really powerful to watch that. And as y'all sort of pass it on to the next phase of Intersect, what do y'all see and and hope for in Intersect's future? Well, I hope it just can continue to grow. And I think with now that Laverne is here and has a team that's on its way to doing great work and already started, I hope we just can continue making this a a partnership and uh, engaging more parents. I think the thing that I would want folks to know is that participating in Intersect is not like a, there's no homework. There can be, there's some of the affinity groups have some reading to do or, but just coming is all you need to do. Just show up. Mm. If you're curious, ask questions, just show up. It's not scary. It's really awesome. I think the flip side of the value is that if as an institution that values belonging, this is a place where you can connect at such a deep level with really strong friendships are grown through this, this effort. I hope that we will continue to see the benefits of Intersect going forward. Also really want to thank all the parents who have been involved whether they've participated in intersect affinity spaces or especially those who have led. It has just been a a privilege to be part of this effort. I'm so proud of the work that we've done. And I mean, we, the collective, we, it's been just a joy to get to know other parents. And there's so many parents who are deeply committed to this work in the community. So there's a lot there. And I am pleased that we were able, and I think this is probably our lasting sort of parting gift, if you will, is that we really help people, the group, the collective, we help people push through their fear Mm. of what it means to gather by identity Mm -hmm. so that whatever this looks like in its next iteration, like that's an important threshold that we help people through. Mm. And that's Jen and I and parent facilitators that showed up during the pandemic when we weren't gathering, intersect groups were, and making space for people and being welcoming. And so it's a great group of folks. I hope that that work continues, those spaces continue, because I think they're important. Mm. And Laverne, as you're in the sunrise of your tenure, indeed, (laughs) in the Office of Institutional Equity, Justice, and Belonging, you know, what do you see 
the office going and how intersect and the role of parents in the vision for what's next at Sandy Spring Friends? You know, I think it's aligned so beautifully in terms of helping community members really push through that fear of gathering, but also holding that fear of difficult conversations. The difficult conversations is where we try to put some teeth in. We try to show them how. We try to give them some foundational language, which is what you all have done so well already. We want to continue that. We want to continue all the ways in which you've given them permission to feel good about coming together. We want to continue those things, those are essential. And we wanna continue the intentionality of including them and letting them know they're heard and know that they build the program, not the program builds them. We're, we're in the spirit of continuing your good work, not erasing anything. Joanna and Jen, you, what you've done is exceptional in exceptional times. You know, I know everybody overuses it, but it was exceptional and we just want to continue that level that bar is pretty high and we hope to knock it out the park and we won't let you move too far away from advising us but we want you to be aware that we're trying to continue your good work not change it in any drastic way mm -hmm. well as we wrap up i'll say that that old saying if you build it they will come and the reflection I'll give to you all as we look at the impact of Intersect, and there's a big impact that it's made on our current families, but I wanna actually highlight our prospective families. So when I'm at admissions events and open houses, there's always a group of parents who stay behind and say, I heard y'all have a black parents group. I heard y'all have an LGBTQ plus parents group. And that's what I've come to ask, is this true? <laughs> and the is this true sort of speaks to not all schools have this, right? That, that you all do this and it's a part of your fabric. And that there are parents who are drawn to this because it is their signal that my kids will be okay here because my kids can be full and fully human in all their complexities here. And as a parent, I'm gonna have the resources I need, right? Because it takes a village and so around those things, the pieces of identity that matter to us and our family, I'm also gonna have that support network. And so I don't know if I reflected to you all that not just the folks who are here, but the folks who are coming are so mm -hmm. excited about what Intersect means for this community. And it speaks to everybody wants a place where they belong. Thank you for building it. <laughs> and I appreciate our time today to just share this conversation. Um, with the wider group. Thank you so much, Rodney. Thank yeah. you, Rodney. Appreciate Thank it. You. So Thank much. you. Thank you, Jen mm -hmm. and Joanna. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we are signing off of this conversation, everybody, and we look forward to the next podcast. Bye. Bye. Thank Bye. you, everybody. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the New Stories Podcast.